James chapter 5 and verse 13, this is the word of God. Let us hear it. James asks a question. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Whenever I think of this epistle that James has written, it just seems to me that this is a very sharp letter. We know, of course, that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And this epistle seems to be the morsel. Maybe this is the very edge of the blade, so to speak. Very convicting, very challenging. James was just not at all impressed. And you can tell when you read his letter, he was not impressed with phony religion. He was not impressed when he could perceive a, a large gap between hearing the word and doing the word. He wanted to see gospel power manifested in the lives of those that professed faith in Christ and not simply professed. So I find the epistle to be uh, most challenging and convicting along those lines. I, I believe if you were to analyze this epistle, you could say that the theme of it is found in the very first chapter, if you look back a couple pages to chapter 1, verse 27, the last verse in the chapter, where James writes this, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Pure religion and undefiled. How often have you heard it said, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, I think I understand the sentiment behind that statement, but that being said, it's simply not true. It is a religion. And religion, in and of itself, is not a bad word. James is using the word. Pure religion and undefiled is this. And I, I take that to be the theme of this entire letter. Pure religion and undefiled before the Father is this. And then James is going to 
more or less define or illustrate pure and undefiled religion along two lines. The first one being the principle of compassion. Compassion in action, you could say. Not enough to feel compassion. The text says that a man will visit the fatherless and widows. Not simply be mindful of them, but he'll do something. He'll visit them. This is faith put into action, which is what James calls for, especially in chapter 2. So there's that principle of compassion. And then the second principle displayed here is that of holiness. In the same verse, verse 27, he says a Christian will keep himself unspotted from the world. So visiting widows and their affliction, compassion, keeping himself unspotted from the world, that becomes a matter of holiness. And avoiding worldliness seems to be the greatest challenge that many Christians face, especially in our culture and in our day and age. It seems that in many circles we're bent more on defending worldly practices than we are overcoming worldliness. The catchphrase among many these days, especially among young people, goes something like this. What's wrong with this? Or what's wrong with that? And in many instances there may not be anything wrong with the practice in question, except when it becomes an all-consuming obsession that gains the mastery over a Christian, when that happens, arguably, a Christian's religion has become defiled. The world, rather than Christ, becomes the all-controlling influence in a man or woman's life. And so the content of this epistle shows us very plainly that not all religion is pure and undefiled, and even religion that is pure can tend to become defiled. And as you come to the end of the epistle, I think you could divide this epistle to James under three general headings. You could say that this epistle teaches us first to recognize pure and undefiled religion, and James spells it out in that 27th verse in chapter 1. It becomes discernible as we see the power of the gospel in every aspect of our lives. And that's basically what James is demonstrating throughout this epistle. Gospel power is going to affect you in many ways. It's going to affect your attitude. It's going to affect your view toward God. It's going to affect your view toward others. It's going to affect the way you use your tongue. It's going to affect the way you view your trials. It affects everything. And then you could say that this epistle teaches us how to restore pure an undefiled religion when it's lost. And now in this last section of the epistle, you could say that it teaches us how to retain or maintain pure and undefiled religion, how to keep it in your possession, how to guard and defend it so that it doesn't degenerate and become impure and defiled. 
And this practice of retaining pure and undefiled religion is described in a single word, which is mentioned seven times in the verses we just read. And it's the term pray or prayer. Look in chapter 5 again. Let me trace the references for you. They begin in verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Next verse. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Verse 16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Verse 17, the reference now to Elijah. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Verse 18, and he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. So you certainly see what an emphasis is placed on the practice of prayer in these closing words of James. Here, then, is an important key to retaining pure religion. We pray. Makes sense, doesn't it? After all, when you were saved, you were not really brought into a new creed that you subscribe to, or a new code of conduct. You became a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You entered into fellowship or communion with the risen and glorified Redeemer. You were adopted into his family. You were given the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So in that sense, I suppose I can go back and make use of the statement that I just criticized. That Christianity is not merely a religion, but it is a relationship. It's both, actually. We do confess a creed, but we certainly do more than that. We enter into communion, into fellowship with the Lord. You entered into a new and living spiritual relationship with Christ when you gained a saving interest in Him. You didn't merely subscribe to a new religion. And the purity and blessing and fullness and joy of this religion are retained or maintained as you fellowship with your Savior. And this is done through prayer. Through prayer and through God's word, I should say. The word for fellowship, I know that you know this. It's the same word in the Greek for communion. It carries the idea then of communication between you and your God, you and your Savior. So that's what I want to focus on for a couple of moments this afternoon. The theme of prayer if I could put, you, put it to you in the context of this epistle, I would say it this way. We must maintain pure religion through prayer. We must maintain pure religion through prayer, which means then, doesn't it, we've got to be much engaged in prayer. And I have a few thoughts on prayer that I want to leave with you. 
this afternoon. Consider with me, first of all, prayer is appropriate for any and all occasions. Prayer is appropriate for any and all occasions. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. Is any among you merry? Let him pray. Is any, did I read that right? Is any among you afflicted? Excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Do you see the conditions that are covered in these verses? Is any afflicted? Is any merry? Is any sick? We could add the next two verses and read it this way. Has any fallen into sin? Has anyone wronged somebody else? We might well ask then, is there any circumstance in life that doesn't come within the scope of what James has just covered in these verses. And I would dare say there isn't, which in turn leads me to conclude that there is no circumstance in life then that isn't suitable for prayer. Is any among you afflicted? The circumstance perhaps more than others, this circumstance is what most readily drives us to prayer. And when you realize this, that affliction is oftentimes necessary to drive us to prayer, then it helps explain why God is pleased at times to send affliction. Because he wants to hear you pray. It seems that there's no better remedy for prayerlessness than a sore trial of affliction. Oftentimes we find the psalmists praying under such circumstances. Psalm 18 and verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry came before him even into his ears. In my distress, he says, I called upon the Lord. Psalm 25 verse 16, Turn thee unto me and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of mine heart are enlarged. O bring thou me out of my distresses. Look upon mine affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. There again you see the occasion for prayer, isn't it? Is affliction and pain, desolateness. Paul refers to his trial of affliction in 2 Corinthians 12. He calls it a thorn uh, in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. He goes on to say that he besought the Lord three times that the thorn might be removed. You see how his affliction drove him to prayer? And Christ's answer was not in the removal of the thorn, but in enabling Paul to see the sufficiency of God's grace. This is a good thing to note, you know, when we seek the Lord in prayer, especially where affliction is involved. How often do we pray, or how often is reference made to Paul's prayer 
that he prayed for the Lord to remove the thorn, and the answer was no. Well, in a sense, that's true, but that's a very incomplete uh, approach to it. There was actually an answer. Uh, No, the Lord would not remove the thorn uh, from Paul, but yes, Paul would come to learn, even uh, through that thorn, the sufficiency of God's grace. When you see somebody undergoing afflictions or trials, that is a good thing, you know, to pray for them. Lord, may they come to see the sufficiency of thy grace. Oh, Lord, if it please thee, remove the affliction from my brother or my sister or from me. But, Lord, if you see fit to have that affliction stay with me, let me know the sufficiency of your grace. Let me believe and experience that sufficiency. Let me be convinced, in other words, Lord, that I am still in the realm of thy favor if I'm in the realm of thy grace. And if the Lord answers that prayer for you, then you'll have the faith to believe that your standing with God is based on the merits of his Son and is not based on the difficulty of your circumstances. The removal of the thorn makes life easier to the flesh, but the sufficiency of grace enables you to endure in the faith no matter what life brings your way. Next circumstance. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. That's really another form of prayer. We don't find the term used there, but that certainly is what we do uh, when we sing to the Lord. It's a form of prayer. <coughs> singing psalms are expressing prayers through singing. In Colossians 3.16, Paul instructs Christians to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And the thing to note from this verse is that corporately we minister to each other in singing. Very important aspect of our worship, you know. Not something that we just do because it's traditionally done. No, there is a vital aspect of ministry in the corporate singing within a worship service. We build each other up in the faith. We encourage and minister to ourselves. On the other hand, the singing is directed to the Lord. The psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are directed to Christ and to God. And this makes the singing of psalms a form of prayer. We are to express our thanksgiving and our praises to the Lord. Now of the two conditions covered in verse 13, this one perhaps becomes the easiest to neglect. It's a testimony to our sinful natures that when we're afflicted, we usually see the need for prayer, but when we're blessed, it becomes so easy to neglect prayer. We treat ourselves as if we've somehow received what we deserve, so there's no need to express prayer or praise or thanks to God. The children of Israel were warned on at least two occasions 
about the danger of prosperity. I won't have you turn up the references, but I'll give them to you. One is in Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 to 12. The other is Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 and 11. And in those verses, the Lord warns the children of Israel, once you've entered the land and things have settled down and you're at peace and you're prospering, don't forget the Lord. That is so easy to do, you know. When sailing is smooth, it seems like prayer is slight. And that ought not to be. You, you, you may think to yourself, well, I'm in need of nothing. I have everything. And that may be the case. On the other hand, you may be deceiving yourself. That's what the Laodiceans thought, too. And boy, did they have a wrong outlook on themselves. But even given that that could be the case, let's see, yeah, you do have everything you need. And everything is functioning smoothly. The car hasn't broken down. The bills are being paid. Everybody's healthy. Everyone seems happy. Well, you certainly have occasion for Thanksgiving now, don't you? If you don't have to seek the Lord for ministering to your need, uh, you can utilize the time instead for thanking Christ for everything he's bestowed upon you in ministering to those needs. The Lord Jesus marveled that of ten lepers that were cleansed, only one, and he a Samaritan, returned to give thanks. It really shouldn't be very difficult to find cause to give thanks. He's given you life. He's given you health. He's given you eyes to see and ears to hear and bountiful blessings too numerous to count. He's given you eternal life through faith in his son. That alone is cause for constant praise and thanksgiving. Is any Mary, let him sing psalms. The next circumstance is sickness. Verses 14 and 15, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. I realize that this verse opens something of an area of controversy. The question arises, is this anointing with oil and prayer of the elders a practice for our day? And I would say that on rare occasions, in the most solemn of circumstances, it can be. As a church, this goes back a long ways. This goes back before I was the minister. I don't think we have ever done this during my time uh, as the minister here. But uh, I was a part of this church for a number of years before I was the minister here. And back in those days, we did engage, um, I personally, as a ruling elder at the time, engaged in the practice. And I was aware then that this was not the first time that the church had engaged in the practice. It was the first time for me on that occasion. We have to be very careful that under such circumstances we don't attribute anything effectual to oil. Okay, we're not 
anointing somebody with snake oil, so to speak, to uh, cure them of whatever ails them. It only serves, I think, to magnify the seriousness of the issue as a matter of prayer, and it contributes to the solemnity of the occasion. It is the prayer of faith that is made effectual according to verse 15. And elders should be above everything else men of faith. So we don't disallow this practice as a church of anointing with oil. But having said that, I think we can draw a very practical application from these verses that can serve us in times perhaps not as solemn and serious. And this leads us to my next point on prayer. Not only is prayer appropriate for any and all occasions, but secondly, prayer is effectual when accompanied with faith. Verse 15 again, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. The word for sick in verse 14 could be translated by the word weak. Now consider that meaning of the word and then look again at the last part of verse 15. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. The picture that can emerge from these two verses just as readily as the picture of a man who is physically ill is the picture of a man who is spiritually weak and maybe his weakness is due to sin. No doubt sin does weaken us. Doubts and fears can weaken us. Spiritual negligence weakens us. And when those doubts and fears are accompanied with physical anxieties and weakness, then it makes it hard to function spiritually. Well, what is needed in that kind of situation? Spiritual support is what's needed. A person finds it so difficult to pray himself under various circumstances. And so what does that person need? He needs the prayers and the support of others. The elders or the other members of his church. You may be able to tell where I'm going with this. The church prayer meeting becomes a source through which those that are spiritually weak can regain spiritual strength. You know, I have come to prayer meetings at times in such a frame of mind and heart that I felt that there's so very little that I can contribute to the prayer meeting. The flesh tells me that it's a waste of time. The spirit often is willing and the flesh is too weak. But what a blessing the prayer meeting becomes if a few, maybe even one person, can lift that meeting to heaven by praying with faith and praying earnestly and sincerely and simply in such a way that you sense your soul being lifted into heaven. I can remember having the privilege of being in a prayer meeting with Ian Paisley before the start of an evening service down in Greenville at Faith Free. And my, how that man could lift a prayer meeting right into heaven. That's what's needed. 
Not everyone can do that. Even those who can don't do it on every occasion. But boy, if you get even a couple of people, and, and it doesn't come by trying to put on a display of piety. It comes through really childlike prayer and simplicity. And Dr. Paisley, for all the man's brilliance and scholarship, I guess the thing that grips me when I think about him is almost a childlike simplicity to his faith. And he prayed that way. And that makes prayer something doable for all of us. I may not be strong enough to pray uh, that way myself, that I can lift the meeting into heaven, but even in a weakened condition, I can lend my heart and pronounce my amen to a spirit-filled brother or sister who gets through to God in such a way that all that are in attendance are raised to heaven and feel heaven descending to meet them. And those become glorious prayer meetings. And this is truly where we minister to each other. This is truly where we carry one another's burdens. We're instructed in verse 16 to pray one for another. I remember many years ago when David DeCanio was still here in the States. Some of you know this, others may not. Some of you may know it and have forgotten it, that David DeCanio went out to Colorado not long after the shooting that took place out there. And he went right to that city and right to that place where that shooting took place with a burden to want to reach some of the young people that had been on hand at the time. He used to keep us very much up to date on how things were going in that ministry. And he used to challenge us to pray for the various people that he brought to our attention. And I remember there was a line, a common line in his emails, and they went like this. If you won't pray for these people, who will? You ever thought about that in terms of the environment in which you work? of the people that you are exposed to when you're in the job, so to speak, which, by the way, is your mission field. When you are in that environment, uh, look around and take note of the people that are there and ask yourself this question. I wonder if anyone is praying for these people that I work with day in and day out. And if nobody is, perhaps I should be praying for their souls. That can be pretty challenging when you think about it. And it raises another important question. Who's praying for you? Who's carrying your burdens with you? Who's lifting up your name before the throne of grace to seek God's blessing for you? I take it to be one of the most important tasks that's committed to me as a minister to take the people in this church to heart in prayer. Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, I often refer to this as my philosophy of ministry. When we read the words of the apostles, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There was a physical need that had arisen in the church. 
uh, some branch of the church, some Gentile branch of the church, the widows were being neglected in the daily ministration. The matter is brought to the apostles. That's what led to the appointing of deacons. We need others that can take on the task of overseeing the material needs, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, there are many ministers that have skills that I don't have and that I'll never have, especially when you start to talk in the realm of administrative duties. There are those that know how to plan. They know how to organize. They have a way of rallying the troops, getting things done, getting people involved. I don't know that I have the kind of magnetic charm that can get anybody to do anything. But I thank God for people in this church that take the initiative to come forward and contribute in many different ways. If folks didn't have that initiative, I'm afraid a lot of things would go undone. But if there's one area of ministry that I feel I can do and feel I must do, and I feel an utter failure if I don't do it, it would be this ministry of prayer. If I can come away at the end of the day, on any given weekday, with a sense of satisfaction that I've done my job and given heed to my calling, the only way that can happen is if I come away knowing with a good conscience I have prayed for the people that are connected to this church. And if we should ever grow to the point where that no longer becomes feasible, then we may reach the conclusion that we've grown too big. That is time to start another one, perhaps. I remember Joe Tom. Boy, this goes back a long ways, doesn't it? Joe Tom, uh, one of the charter members here. And I remember when this building was built and Joe was with us. And Joe used to, he had a tendency at times to grumble. He said, I was told, and this goes back to the uh, founding pastor of the church. He and Joe used to be at loggerheads with each other. And especially was this building a source of contention between the two. Uh, I could tell you stories, but there's no need for that on, on this occasion. But um, after the building was built, I remember Joe coming to me and saying, I was told if we build the building, they will come. Got to remind you of a movie. <laughs> if you build it, they will come. Where are they? Why are we so small? Uh, why haven't the people been drawn in the way I was told that they would be? And I remember I used to say to Joe when he would bring that grumble to me, Joe, I want you to do something for me. I want you over the next week to pray for every single person in this church. And I want you to do it uh, not just in a broad and general way. Lord, bless this person and that child and bless this, that, and the other one. No, re really get down and, and pray for them uh, over things that you can perceive would be needs or challenges that they're facing or blessings that they need. And Joe, if you will do that for a week, you may come to the conclusion that this church is too large because you, you won't find that easy to do. 
the flesh will hate it. The devil will oppose you. And yet that's what we're called on to do. To pray for one another. And this is not a ministry that needs to be restricted to the pastor, though it certainly is the prime responsibility of the pastor. I'm sure most of you know the scene that's described in Exodus 17. Joshua has gone to war against Amalek. Moses and Aaron and Hur go to the top of the hill. So long as Moses' hands are lifted in intercessory prayer, Joshua prevails. But when his hands grow heavy to where he can no longer lift them up, then Amalek prevails. So Aaron and Hur, they set up a stone for Moses to sit on. And as he sits, they hold up his hands and support him. And Joshua at last prevails and gains the victory. Oh, we all need to be supported, and we all need to be supporting one another. That's what makes church so important, you know. And this is the way we function. This is the way we operate. This is how pure religion is maintained. This is how faith is exercised. This is how prayer is made effectual. And so when you find it hard to pray, then come to the prayer meeting and let the rest of us hold up your hands. And when you find the strength to pray, then come to the prayer meeting prepared to support someone who may be finding it difficult. If you can lift your voice to heaven with the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, a prayer that is prayed in faith, then the rest of us will certainly find that even in our weakness, we can lend our hearts to the one who is strong and give our assent to his praying. So prayer is appropriate for any occasion. Prayer is effectual when accompanied with faith. Corporate praying within the church is a means through which we can support and be supported by faith. I have a third point here, and I only mention it because in a sense we've covered it in our studies of Elijah, and that is that prayer availed, avails much when God's honor is its aim. Prayer avails much when God's honor is its aim. Look at verses 17 and 18. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. You know, we we know that only because of James' statement here. When you look at the Old Testament narrative, uh, you won't find a statement that says Elijah prayed that it might not rain. Uh, It takes James to supply that little bit of information that the author of 1 Kings does not supply. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months, and he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. We have seen this in the life of Elijah. We'll see it even more as we get uh, into chapter 19 a little deeper. Why would a man pray for God to withhold the rain? Why would a man pray uh, for circumstances to become intolerably unbearable for the inhabitants uh, of the land in which he dwelt? Well, it springs out of a jealousy for God's honor. 
and it springs out of knowledge of the covenant that God had made with the nation. And we looked at this some while back. There was a scriptural warrant that Elijah could utilize in praying to God that he would hold back the rain. God had said that he would hold back the rain when the people went astray. All Elijah is praying then amounts to, Lord, do as thou hast said, and hold back the rain until the hearts of these people are turned back to you. And I imagine he pleaded along those same lines after uh, the fire fell and the people fell on their faces and confessed that the Lord, he is God. Lord, you've heard their confession now. They put away their idolatry. They are no longer divided between two opinions as to who is God. They know that thou art God, so Lord, send the rain. And the Lord did send it. The aim in our praying must always be for the honor of God to prevail. And that really is covered in the very first petition in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I think that's what governed Elijah's praying in that instance. Lord, hallow your name. Sanctify your name. Do what is needed, Lord, to convince these people of who God is and let them distinguish between the true and living God and false idols. Hallowed be thy name. So let's take up the practice of prayer in even greater constancy and consistency. And let's be seeking the Lord much these days. For the honor of his name. This is what makes religion or leads to religion being pure and undefiled. When the people of the Lord do seek their God and Father's face. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bring this meeting to a close now, we pray that thou wilt help us to establish and maintain pure and undefiled religion. May our walk with the Lord be characterized by compassion and holiness and communion with our God. And we pray, O Lord, that thou wilt give us the privilege of having a part in the extension of thy kingdom. So hear our prayers and stir our hearts, O Lord, to be praying often and to be praying for each other. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.